Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We are highlighting adaptations from Season 9 over at our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. That's the site where listeners can purchase the source material for all of our adapted film discussions. We had a big Robin Hood series this season, looking at nine different versions on screen. Many were likely adapted from Howard Pyle's The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood, including Douglas Fairbanks in Robin Hood, The Adventures of Robin Hood, Disney's Robin Hood, Robin Hood Prince of Thieves, and the 1991 Robin Hood, and Ridley Scott's Robin Hood. Robin and Marion was specifically based on the ballad, The Jest of Robin Hood. And we really don't have too much to say about Robin and the Seven Hoods. We talked Dead Ringers for our David Cronenberg series adapted from Barry Wood and Jack Geisland's novel, Twins. Have you checked out that show? You know, I haven't, but I've heard great things. Two comedies from our Steve Martin series were adaptations, Pennies from Heaven from the BBC series, and The Lonely Guy from the book by Bruce J. Friedman. The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas was part of our Colin Higgins series, adapted from the Broadway musical. Spike Lee brought us Black Klansman from Ron Stallworth's memoir. And we looked at a trio of John Le Carey adaptations, The Spy Who Came In From the Cold, The Little Drummer Girl, and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Plus, all three movies in our Agnieszka Holland series were based on books, Europa Europa, In Darkness, and Spore. La Caja Fall and its remake, The Birdcage, both came from Jean Poiré's original play. We also talked about Arsenic and Old Lace and Charade in our Gary Grant series. All of these were based on other material, and it is all available on our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book purchased supports the podcast. Get the full list of adaptations we've covered and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals. 
I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Europa, Europa is over. It's time to pray for candy from the sky. This is the true story of Solomon Peril. On the eve of war in 1938, his father orders him to survive at any cost. Separated from his home and family, he embarks on an odyssey, the likes of which has never been seen on the screen before. We're kicking off a new series tonight, Andy. This is very exciting. Huzzah! Huzzah! We like new series. Oh, yeah, we sure do. And this is the series of the films of Agnieszka Holland. Uh, How'd we we end up with uh, the good uh, Miss Holland? I have uh, known about her and her films for a while, and I think stemming from this particular film that we're talking about tonight, I have found her, um, I I haven't seen a lot of her works, but I I really enjoyed this one, um, her version of The Secret Garden. She did a film um, with um, Leonardo DiCaprio called Total Eclipse that was kind of an interesting film, kind of an indie film in the 90s. I seem to really bulk up on her 90s projects. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I feel like Olivier, Olivier, that's one that I always feel like I think I've seen it, but I, I can't quite remember. So she's always been a director that stuck with me. And I think it's largely because of this film and how it stuck with me and how it resonated with me. So I found her to be a really interesting um, director to potentially talk about for the show. And I know I probably had been trying to throw her name into our hat for a good uh, while and managed to finally get her on here because, you know, she's an interesting filmmaker who makes interesting films and is worth talking about. Well, and that that leads us to this film. I mean, she was she was, um, uh, I, I think, ended up connected to uh, some incredible source material for this movie, and that that is this is a memoir. This is a a, a true story, Europa, Europa, um, uh, uh, that uh, based on the memoir of Charlemagne uh, Perel. The the book was, um, you know, I was a, a Nazi Jungen, and um, uh, he tells the story of his life pretending to be, uh, you know, of different ethnic backgrounds in order to make his way through uh, the war in across Europe. And it is uh, incredibly compelling. Uh, so how this was the second time you've seen this movie? Third time? Yeah, you've the seen first it a bunch time was, uh, no, just twice. The first time was... Um, in the theater when it came out, but it was at the, you know, our campus would have like an international film series where kind of the indie international films would come through probably shortly after the main release. Mm-hmm. And I saw it there and it just, it has always stuck with me. And um, so this was the second time I had seen it, but it, it was, it was a thrill to revisit it. And I really fell for that style of storytelling where it's just kind of this journey and Every step of the way is kind of a different experience, and you kind of get a sense of this person and their life and how things change because of all the different kind of experiences that they go through over the course of the story. And I had kind of forgotten a little bit of that with this particular film and revisiting it. It's like, oh, this is why it's stuck in my head for so many years because of this storytelling style, which I just find so compelling. I just, I I think it's really a mesmerizing film and it's very easy to identify with this young um, Shalaman character 
or Sally, as he's often called, um, or Solak. I mean, there's a variety of different names he ends up going by. Um, because it's just, it's he's he's a young, easily identifiable character who just who you can just kind of ride along with in this journey, and it's and it's easy to see why he ends up making some of these crazy decisions that he does because of this kind of drive to survive. And I just I find it to be a really interesting story as he kind of goes through these various iterations of the European and Asian countryside as he's kind of moving across uh and and experiencing and meeting people. It's it's just a fascinating film. It's if you were at a dinner party with Sally, mm-hmm. right? And he's telling you the story of his youth and you didn't know him and you never you never met him. You're just saying, hey, what's up? Well, let me tell you a story. <laughs> it would be wholly unbelievable. Right. And and so oh, yeah. to your point about this sort of storytelling style, it's this sort of accidental exploration of the world. And uh, it it is something that I think is you it, it might be it, it's not unique to this sort of memoir film but it is something that finds a safe harbor in these kinds of films which is the sort of uh incidents of happenstance and accidents that lead us on this path what is it that uh that allows this to take root for us as a narrative when things that are that that the film wears so heavily on its sleeves that are absolute just crazy coincidences that keep propelling this thing forward we get the sense that they're true because we know it's a memoir i haven't read the book but when things happen like it's going to take an act of god for me uh to get out of this one <laughs> and then the building is blown up where he's where the people are are you know looking for his papers immediately as he walks out on the street that's just incredible. And yet somehow this movie propels propels me too. I mean, I am fascinated by it, but I'm curious why this film and and films like it have this sort of safe harbor in telling stories of accidental discovery and still being able to make them believable. That's an interesting question and I I think a lot of it stems from I feel like a lot of it stems from the youth of our protagonist and and to a certain extent it can be um you can watch it and end up interpreting it as, you know, through the eyes of youth, which I, I think, I mean, even in in uh, the real Shalomans kind of journey, it's entirely possible that there is some of that, you know, 14 to 16 year old mental recollection of how things were because of his age. But at the same time, it ends up playing in such a strange way that it feels authentic. And I think the reason for that, and I think this is what attracted Holland to the script, is when she first was presented with some of this material, which was before it was even published. Like, she was presented to it um, when it was still uh, just in early stages and just a few chapters. And and she found that Perel, he didn't embellish his stories. He didn't paint himself in a better light. And because of that, uh, you know, it it ends up making this character somebody who who you can kind of buy into because it's not just always about how how Sally escapes because of his smarts and whatever. I mean, sometimes he's making incredibly selfish 
decisions because he just wants to live. Sometimes it's just, you know, his 16-year-old lust making these decisions for him. And so I think a lot of it is is that that ends up making the story that much more believable. It, it is funny. I think I, I like the sort of planting that uh, in, in the sort of arm of youth that uh, it makes the story lighter than in spite of some of the more grotesque things that go on in this movie, it makes the movie lighter than I think other movies uh, in the kind of war genre, the, the, telling the stories as frontline stories. Uh, there are certainly things that are hard to to see in this movie, but I wouldn't call it a grotesque example or thing of, of the genre. I wouldn't call it something that's just outright hard to watch. No. Right. I, sure. I think it's easier to watch because it's it is it's easier to absorb because it's it we're, it's seen through the eyes of, I, I think, an honest young protagonist. This guy who, as you say, he's just trying to make uh, to make his way across the countryside to find his family, to find his place, to to deal with difficult things that he's seeing around him. But um, it's this isn't a horror film by a horror war film by any stretch. Right. I, no, I, I mean, think it's a coming of age story. Really. It is. It's a coming in age of age story. It's the it's the graduate, you know, but told in a very different context. Even the <laughs> first it sort of the inciting incident when he jumps out of the tub uh, is an act of youthful rebellion against the family. Right. He ends up paying a dramatic sort of price. But you can tell like his he is running on instinct when he yeah. hears rocks come through the door and that sort of terror hits him. And he jumps out the window naked and hides in a barrel. And that is something that he ends up uh, not thinking about, not playing out how that game's going to going or how that round's going to end, um, you know, until he gets back in and sees his sister is dead. Like that is a, an, uh, I, I think the first act of awakening that I think demonstrates this is, this is a coming of age story. He's a kid when this starts. And what a way to re-enter that scene wearing the Nazi outfit yeah. that, you know, one of the neighbors just found randomly for him right. so that he had some clothes and could <laughs> retreat home without running through the streets again naked. Yeah. And just seeing him come in in a Nazi uniform only to see his sister dead there. I find it it to be such a an odd juxtaposition mm -hmm. that is uncomfortable. But also, I think that lends to exactly this point that we're making about how the story is being told and why a story like this makes sense. You know, it's this coming of age story where this this kid just doesn't, he is still very much in his world, right? And I think mm -hmm. that's something that you get very much in stories about youth is, and I think he says it a few times where it's like, uh, it's so much about his own reality and this thing called war is just impeding on him because now he just can't do that thing that he wanted to do. Right. That sort of attitude that, that the youth have when their world is so much smaller and that hasn't opened up to a much bigger scale yet. Yeah. 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 It's, it is fascinating as he, the other thing that I think makes it, um, I think leverages that perspective well is the fact that that every major incident, every major sort of community shift. I'm, I'm calling it in my head a community shift because he goes from being this uh, the the a, a Jewish boy in his family to moving through and becoming so joining sort of the the Russian uh, Bolshevik school and 
camp and then he gets picked up by the Nazis and becomes the most popular boy in the Nazi. (laughs) It's like he's every it's like he keeps changing communities and he's the most popular kid in the class. Uh, You know, all due respect to the the guy who, you know, the the Polish nationalist boy who who did not like him very much when he was in the Bolshevik school. Like he was always sort of the at the center of his class by happenstance again. Like he was just lucky that he happened to turn himself in and and plan his, uh, you know, to desert the Germans and turn himself back into the Russians <laughs> the, with his gun in the air. Uh, the, the right as the Germans would come over and and imagine that he has just taken seven Russians hostage by himself when he was trying to desert to them. Like that is an act of happenstance that, again, just furthered his popularity and made him a candidate to go to this special school and all of these things by accident, making him the most popular kid in school. He was just a boy trying to look out for himself, trying to kind of leverage that that sense of that that ideological worldview where he is just number one. And um, and and I think it it plays so well in this movie and and surprisingly well in the landscape of of the war at this time it it very much makes sense when you look at scenes like you know him winning the swimming contest right and and gaining the affections of uh of lenny played by julie delpy which is great to see her in such a young role Um, and and you get it to see it in just a lot of those those moments where it's just the excitement or like when he gets to be in the pictures because uh, he was the one who helped do the translations when they they happened to capture uh stalin's son (laughs) all these Mm -hmm. Things that really happen by happenstance, but he's there. And I think it makes sense that that Holland, she really kind of compared his character a bit to Woody Allen's Zelig and how that was this this character that always was in the right place at the right time. And because of that, um, helped boost kind of his own persona, which I find just so incredibly fascinating over the course of this film. And that much more powerful when you get to the end and he's in this situation where he is now about to be killed because he is, uh, you know, by, you know, this gun the Russians give to this this Polish prisoner and uh, they said, here, kill him or do what you want with him. And then his brother shows up. And just that, then all of a sudden that raw emotion that you read, the way that his brother reacts, that just that joy and and uh, everything is just all of a sudden it all kind of comes and you realize there's there's been a big journey here and it really affects a lot of people. And it just, I don't know, I just find it to be so um, authentic the way that we kind of conclude in this way where he has kind of gone full circle and now he's in this place where he welcomes his Jewishness, I guess you could say, and, and is is back with his his own tribe. Yeah, his tribe, his family, his, you know, his people, even though his, you know, most of his family has had died the fact that he was able to find his brother and 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 sort of come home and it it really marks the end of this major sort of growing phase you feel like he hears his brother calling his name and and uh that's that's the choke point of this movie is the audience is hearing his his brother and watching them hug even as he his hands are still you know uh, tied behind his back um is I, I mean, it's just a, a heart wrenching sort of awakening that he's in such a, a sort of horrible place, and yet it's better than anywhere he's been since he left home. Um, 
And uh, I, I don't have a sense of how long he was away. What is the, what well, is the we time? Know Do you know he the time? Said, we know he said that when he went to the, um, when he was in Russia and he was in the orphanage, that he was there for two years. Long enough to, to learn Russian. Learn Russian and everything. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question, though. I'm going to see if I can... Uh, uh, figure that out while we keep talking. Yeah, because here. that's a, that, that was I, I kept that kept going through my mind because obviously he doesn't uh, age in the film terribly. I think he's uh, not terribly. <laughs> that came out wrong. <laughs> uh, but the the act young actor Marco Hofschneider is uh, you know he you don't get a, a sense that they they did a lot of work to age him in the movie, but he clearly was older a lot happened to him and he ingested a lot i think just the act of kind of growing up and and knowing that you know he he learned russian in this camp and was able to learn it well enough to become a you know an effective translator in the field for the nazis was right. um you know that's significant it looks like he was 14 when he and his brother uh attempted to flee uh, the mm-hmm. Soviet-occupied part of Poland, and he ended up in the orphanage. He was there for a couple years and then ended up as the translator with the Nazis starting when he was 16. Mm-hmm. And then he was basically with them through the time until 1945, so another four years. So all told, it was a full six years that he was going through this process. Yeah. All right, so he ends up, he's 20 at the end of this movie when he finds his brother again. Yeah, and and, and his brother not, yeah. by that time, that point, looks about sixty. <laughs> yeah, right. He, <laughs> he clearly has hard. gone through quite yeah. a bit of stuff, and that was his real brother. That yes. was uh, Marco Hofschneider's real brother, which is yeah. great. His brother Renee. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was that was very cool, and they end up, uh, you know, it, it ends up being a strangely, you know, given the journey that we are, we're on with with Sally, it ends up being a, a rewarding experience watching them walk the fields at the end as they are taken. Uh, by the Americans. Um, yeah. And that much more powerful when we then cut to the real Shalaman uh, singing by a lake, you mm-hmm. know, when we see the real uh, person in 19, I suppose it was ni- early 1990, late 1989, yeah. I think when they were filming this, um, and uh, and actually seeing him, um, it just made it that much more poignant. And that was that was a beautiful moment also because we end up on this completely still beautiful lake with the sun making it glow this beautiful golden color um, as we just kind of hold and find a moment of peace at the end. Well, I I find that lovely. And he's singing Psalm 133. See now how good and how pleasant is the dwelling of brothers moreover in unity. He's uh, on the banks of this river in Israel. And uh, I, I, I wanted to talk just a minute about uh, what this shot does for him, for us, you know, as sort of voyeurs of his life here, especially in context of the first shot of the film, which Mm -hmm. is a dream. We're underwater and he is he is uh, clearly in uh, his Nazi youth uniform and he's underwater he's trying to i i'm gather swim away there's somebody trying to grab him it is the first of our our nightmares that he has these dreams that he has um but it, the the fact that the first shot starts in such a struggle such a compressed kind of uh close quarters and suffocating experience underwater and that the last shot becomes this beautiful expansive uh open 
breathable golden hour. Uh, yeah, completely uh, still on yeah. top of the water. It 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 feels like a lovely homage to the the whole experience that he is. You know, he's safe. He's safe now. He's he's climbed out. Uh, well, and think of how how kind of. Um, trapped you are in water and how kind of exposed because it's not our natural state and so mm-hmm. at the beginning he just feels so trapped and confined because he's trapped underwater swimming in his uh, a nazi uniform and then later i mean even in his bathtub he's naked uh, in the bath when those rocks get thrown through the window and that mm-hmm. forces him to jump out and run around and then there's the swimming which is uh, granted it's a race but still they're swimming in uniform carrying yeah. weapons and it's a it's you know a very difficult race swimming just, over uh, the giant symbol of everything giant, he's hiding from this Nazi Nazis the swastika painted right. on the bottom of the pool uh-huh and then also he and his brother get separated as he's uh, at the river as he gets put on the boat and his brother doesn't. And, and then he falls in the water and gets rescued by a Russian. Mm-hmm. And it, it's a very um, beautiful theme and just kind of just the theme of kind of water just being this kind of change agent and uh, this element that is so fluid in people's lives and how it's so representative of who he has to be in order to kind of survive the way that he has to be basically be water to kind of flow through all these situations in a natural way. It, it, even more so that that through the uh, as he learns to kind of Im- be with water and be water, right? It, he learns the the sort of experience of betrayal of it, right? And and you already mentioned the you know the separation of him and his brother as as they they deal with the initial escape on the boat. Uh, I, I can't get out of my head the betrayal of water in the barn when the actor that has sort of befriended him reaches into the water to as he's bathing. He thinks he's in private and he's he, uh, you know, attempts to um, to, you know, uh, engage in some sort of sexual activity um, and. That because so much of this movie hinges on him not being discovered to be circumcised or to have been circumcised, he's had to hide his privates the entire time. This one moment that he is able to uh, have this experience of freedom to kind of just let himself be who he is, uh, it, it is ultimately the fact that he is so free in this water that that leads to him being discovered as as having been circumcised by a nazi as it turns out it is it it's not uh it, it they actually become very strange friends briefly um <laughs> but you know he, he ends up staying safe but it is still a, to me a, a real symbol of the fact that he's you know he's been betrayed by this thing that he's trying to understand or, you know sort of well betrayed but at the same time it ends up being an expose an exposure agent because yeah it allows them both to basically revel in the truth yeah right? that's a good point it, it allows this german nazi soldier who happens to be gay uh to be himself around around right. sally who gets to be himself and only when they're together do they now actually get to just be friends and be open and what a relief it is uh, both of them just kind of enjoying the fact that they can be who they are well yeah Um, and the actor no longer like after that experience he no longer feels the need to in any way sort of push himself onto onto sully to dominate as as he was making the move to do uh and and they end up do having a end up having a, a kind of a 
a beautiful friendship. It really is. Yeah. And it's, and that I think is another nice element in the story that really fits in with kind of this whole Pilgrim's Progress journey sort of thing where he meets people throughout and they become different parts of his life, um, helping kind of representing different elements and different growth agents, right? As, as that is uh, a person that kind of teaches him not every Nazi is necessarily a bad one. There, it, to a certain extent, they're people. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I can see why there are elements within this film that gave a lot of German critics reason to call this, you know, elements of anti-Semitism um, and be very frustrated with the way things were depicted. But in all honesty, I think it also depicts it as just very human when you stop seeing these people as just very specifically who they are and just as or as the roles that they're playing and more just specifically as the people they are. Like another example is the young Russian kid later in the film when, you know, they're trying, they're battling, he's with the young Nazis and they're battling the Russians and the Russians are storming them and he's looking out the window. He he is afraid to shoot and he sees a young Russian coming up and this young kid stands up and 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 Sully kind of looks at him and they acknowledge each other like they're both young kids fighting this war for these other people and they're like why am i even here until one of his uh one of Sully's superiors kills him but still you get this sense that there's an exploration in this film of the humanness mm-hmm. of what's going on that gets so lost by the wayside when it focuses so much on just the brutalities of war. There's this other angle that I want to make sure we talk about, which is that I I think more horrifying than some of the things we already expect from a war movie uh, that I think this movie does exceptionally well. And I don't I don't remember the last time I've seen a movie like this that, uh, you know, a true story that really sort of focused on this angle of the manipulation of children, an entire generation of children indoctrinated into this like bananas belief system uh, that we see on display, for example, in this classroom of this very prestigious school as this uh, older gentleman teacher uh, is attempting to measure the facial features of Sally to prove that he is an, an Aryan and deserves to be in that classroom. And uh, he ends up saying, no, you're not a, a pure sort of ethnic German, but you're Aryan. And so you you deserve to be here. I can tell by measuring the features, the size of your head, the, <laughs> the length of the tip of your nose to your forehead and your lips that you're not a Jew. And at least we've nailed that. We're OK. No Jews here. It is absurd. And, and you see that writ large in this movie. The every time you engage with a, a child in the youth movement here, you get a sense of just how uh, important the infrastructure was to indoctrinate children, to make them feel like they are part of this giant machine and make them grow into their role uh, in this um, in, in the experience. I mean, I did. Did that hit home for you at all? It it did, and I I think that it's definitely a good one to bring up because I think that it, it it does a good job also of exploring how easy it can be for for people to manipulate these young kids into kind of buying into this whole belief system. I mean, they're a, basically 
it's like a prep school. You know, they're doing swimming competitions. They're doing just regular old classes. But they also happen to be going through this, you know, uh, anti-Semitic training and very Nazi-oriented. But still, it's just school. And, I, you know, with these young minds, you can see how easy they are to manipulate because you're a teacher. You know better because kids believe adults know what's right, and they just do what you tell them. I think another really interesting example is Julie Delpy's character, who I find to be really interesting about how she approaches everything. She's a young girl who falls for these boys, falls for Sully, and really believes that the Jews are are terrible. They're the ones who, and this is what's interesting, they're the ones responsible for her father's death, right? And that, I think, is another way that these kids were spun into these belief systems because of the war and the fact that my dad died in that war. Therefore, the enemy is that much more bad because they're the ones who killed him and took him away from me. And I I find it to be such a contrast that I just, I found really almost profound with the story when he ends up confessing to Lenny's mother, who is the one who um, understands what he's going through and feels for him and is at the same time completely heartbroken knowing that her daughter will never be able to do that exact same thing that she just did and accept him for who he is. And she's the one who's getting pregnant because she wants to donate her child to to the cause. I mean, it's it's such a fascinating comparison between mother and daughter right there. Well, especially when mother comes out as she's holding him in her arms, right? She's holding his head and says, don't ever tell Lenny what you've just told me. She's just, kids today are different. This generation is different. I mean, she just cops to it. uh, That, uh, to your point, you know, this movie does such a good job of demonstrating earlier on that there are other kinds of Germans. And here we realize that that um, it, it it's it that was where the separation took place, right? Mother and child. That was the generation that was that was written into the Nazi party. And then yeah. there was the activist on the train who ended up uh, having a little bit of a speaking of the graduate, a little bit of a Mrs. Robinson moment uh, right there on the train and gave an entirely new meaning to the words mein Führer. <laughs> Yes, she did. So enraptured by uh, by this boy and his, his youth, and his courage. Honestly, a little disturbing that this middle aged woman is uh, laying it down with this sixteen uh, year old boy. Um, but I mean, is so taken with everything going on that she doesn't even realize that he's uh, his circumcised. Yeah. 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 yeah, I thought that was that. You know, it was dark, and the train was moving. Yeah, and you just how are you? You're not paying attention to details. No, apparently not. No, apparently not. Very interesting to kind of look at all these different um, <laughs> things, but and that goes to the sense of this journey and how every character is this different aspect of life for him to experience. I you've seen other Agnesia Holland movies, have yes. you? Okay. Mm-hmm. How do yeah. what do we need to know about her as a as a filmmaker? I think that um she hasn't done a lot of Holocaust films. I think she's done 3, 2 or 3. 
Holocaust films. Are we doing uh, any it, more of them in our series? We yet? are. Our next one is uh, this uh, in darkness is the next one we're going to be talking about. And okay. that's one of her others. Um, we are skipping that. Uh, the, the other one for something non Holocaust related. She actually has said over the course of making the films that she did that deal with the Holocaust, that she felt um, pretty, like, she, she ended up spending, like, seven-plus years of her life just doing all the work to actually make the films. And she's like, I have spent more time focusing on stories of the Holocaust than the Holocaust itself actually lasted. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of done. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that probably, you know, that's fair. That's very fair. Uh, in, in terms of her uh, approach to the work, do should we hold off on a conversation about what she brings to the thing as a, to to the picture as a filmmaker after we've seen more of her films in a row? I am ill-equipped to have that conversation, but I am really curious what you observe in in her style. Yeah, I, I I definitely want to explore these other films before we really get into it. But I know that she has never shied away from politics and, you know, both in her films and just in life mm -hmm. in Poland. You know, she is very much one of those people who is engaged in the political scene. Um, I think that she is a person who um, I, actually she doesn't even live there anymore. I think she ended up uh, moving to France at some point. Right. But, um, yeah, I think that the way that she tells her stories is very intelligent, very artful. I think that she recognizes the type of stories that she's telling. And I, again, I'm thinking to specifically the ones that I've seen from her from the 90s, which is largely all I've seen. But I feel like when you see the way that she approaches this, and she even said, you know, she doesn't want to make it purely tragic. She wants to allow it to be a little playful. And what I love about the way that she adapted um, um, the the memoirs in the case of this is that she really did revel in that playful element, whether it's having um, having uh, Sully do the little, you know, as he's practicing his salute, he starts dancing, which was improv, but she recognized it like, this is a great thing. We have to have that little dance because mm -hmm. it totally reflects your youth. But also a moment that I just found to be just brilliant screenwriting. It's when she, or when he's on the boat and uh, he's calling for his brother, he's separated, they're passing another boat, there's a lot of confusion as to what's going on. The narration kicks in, because we haven't even talked about the fact that this it's is a, a, it's a biopic, and so, yeah, there's a lot of narration. As the narration is happening, the narration gets interrupted as the character gets bumped off the boat and falls into the water. <laughs> I was like, that was a genius way yeah. to kind of just tie all this, uh, you know, the narration past and present together. Well, so and, she's, and she's having, allowing too. herself to fun. The, oh, and the, the dreams, The dreams, wow. too. I mean, we got, we got, how can you talk about sort of frivolity in filmmaking and not talk about Hitler and Stalin ballroom dancing? <laughs> right. It's just lovely. <laughs> Yep, it like, was a fantastic little bit. It is, and what a wonderful way to demonstrate the the fall of the Stalin Hitler Pact and early in the in the war, and and that you know as you watch Stalin's brain break open, this giant facade of his head break open, and candies falling from the the dear leader ceiling in this <laughs> in this hall. I mean, it's just, uh, and and I believe they were in were they in a church? 
during this? Was that a church or was that just a, a gathering hall? Because it, it felt like this was on the heels of a major discussion in the film of uh, of atheism, right? And it was challenging, um, you know, a, a religious well, belief. Right. Yeah, because it was when he was in the Soviet Union. Yes. And he was at the orphanage. So to me, it looked like the orphanage meeting hall okay. slash prayer hall. Yeah, right. So I, room, I thought it, was, it yeah. was an interesting location to have this, to, you know, this breakup of the Stalin-Hitler pact and, and candies falling from clearly a vent in the ceiling, thanks to dear leader, not to God. Like it is you, all of the things that we're talking about here, right? Her political activism, her ideological worldview, her they're all coming to play in this one sequence and Stalin and Hitler are ballroom dancing. And I thought it was just brilliant. <laughs> and it represents the confusion yeah. swirling around in his head. Truly. Brilliantly. Yeah. Truly. His youth. He has cra- that craziness, and 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 weirdly, it was a kind of a uh, it was a, a spot of of joy in the middle of the film. That is just it, you know, in a film when you you know he's going through some incredibly difficult things uh, to give us a break to laugh a little bit. I think was was well done, and I think that speaks so well again to the way that Holland constructed the script. Yeah. I just think it's such a smart script the way that she allowed that fourteen to. 19-year-old youth to come through in this journey. And I just, I, I don't know, I just, I, I can't get over how how smooth it all is. It just flows really beautifully through from beginning to end. So the film was shot in English and German simultaneously. And all I could read into that was for Julie Delpy, who didn't speak German. Well, I think there were a lot of different people speaking a lot of different languages. There were a lot of and languages. Because, I mean, there's clearly a lot of dubbing. Every yeah. time uh, Marco Hofschneider is speaking Russian, it's clearly dubbed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that it's just throughout, you know, they were just getting people to either either try to speak it and then dub them or just speaking their native languages. And honestly, I feel like a lot of that could still be just the way that things were done at the time. I mean, we've looked at some other German films, Italian films of the era, yeah. and they were still in a place where they weren't recording the live sound on set. and and Or if they were, they would still have people speaking their own languages and dub it later. So right. I, I guess I'm not surprised that that is the way that this film was constructed. Some uh, some parts dubbed better than others. Uh Certainly, uh, but uh, uh, overall, I it, it, I didn't find it terribly jarring, and the and the restoration I will call it a restoration. Obviously, I haven't seen the original, but it I I signed up for the Criterion Channel, Andy. Hey, look at you! Yeah, I'm in it. This was my a number one, one film <laughs> down. Oh, nice, uh, and uh, it, it's a good it, way to start. It was a great way to start. It was just a lovely. Um, a lovely rendition of it. I um, saw. Well, I guess I, the the disc that I got from Netflix was the DVD. I know that they have subsequently released it on Blu-ray, um, but still, I mean, it was mm-hmm. it was completely taken care of. Very clean print. It looked really nice. Cinematography: Jacek Petrich Petrichki. Sounds good to me. Jacek. These are, it's going to be tricky names for this us. This is going to be tough. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to yeah. be a very difficult series. Uh, I'm, <laughs> I, I'm a real poly goof. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it, the camera, I thought, was uh, it, it was an able camera. I, I find found myself uh, truly absorbed, like th- saying out loud, this is going to be a great experience in the first uh, opening sequence after the dream. It takes us straight to a circumcision. 
a bris, right? right? <laughs> and uh, everybody's gathering, but we're watching. Uh, the kids are all watching through interior windows, like interior doors that are slightly, you know, dirtied, and. The uh, reverse shots are all looking back at the kids through these glass panes, and it is so deeply interesting the way <laughs> these shots move that it took me a while to realize I think they were already uh, like it was the moment the the moyle is it the moyle that's what it's called the the person who reaches down is that what it's called I'm sure deeply I... out of my depth here but reaches down and <laughs> and grabs the baby penis and starts the the process and that's when i realized that uh i'm in the middle of something i didn't expect <laughs> it was already too late i was just enraptured <laughs> by the way he moves the camera around and, and they use the camera on these tight interior spaces i thought it was just lovely there was a lot of movement it always felt alive never in a way that um felt confusing never in a way that uh, you know just uh, that made it obvious um and you know i don't have a problem with an obvious camera i certainly love it when it's used in a really fun way but i felt like in the context of the way that this story unfolded it just it felt youthful and i think that worked really well for this young character mm -hmm. as he traipsed around uh, the european countryside yeah, it, you know, some really interesting perspectives, too. You know, the way he uses that that crane at the, the death of our actor friend, right, where mm. we have um, yeah, the, the God's eye Sally, view where yeah, goes straight up, yeah. goes straight up and, and is revealing all of the death in the trenches uh, and, and what has gone on in this sequence, right, that we've just sort of borne witness to. And what we are still most concerned with is that sense of humanity and that little offshoot, but it gives us that sort of reveal of the shape of the earth so slowly. And uh, I, I found it just uh, uh, incredibly uh, touching and powerful way to use the camera. Um, it was it was great. I don't believe I've seen anything else he's done. I haven't either. Looking through his work, yeah, I just haven't caught anything else from him but it just i and i don't know how much he's worked outside of this with mm -hmm. uh Onyeska. i i don't think a lot so um um but you know who knows i i don't know but i i think that in context of this story they worked very well together mm -hmm. the big new preissner mm, yes is behind the music of this film how did it hit you uh, it's beautiful i mean i think that the themes just fit really well in context of this story as well. I, I He's a composer that I am more familiar with. Uh, he, you know, he has worked with uh, Holland on a number of other projects like The Secret Garden. He worked on the Three Colors trilogy. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm familiar with his work there. Uh, I, I think that, let's see, I'm trying to think what else he's done. Uh, stuff like... Um, Double Life of Veronique. Double Life of Veronique. Fairy Tale, A True Love mm -hmm. or a True Story. Uh, you know, he's he's a person who has written some very well-known themes, I think. And uh, just somebody whose music I find to be uh, very emotional. And so I really enjoy it. I do too. There's this, there is this theme that hits, right? This long note that just sort of comes in a number of times when we're when we're watching in these moments of transformation right after Sally experiences something it it just sort of this resonant tone 
that hits that I find really jarring. And it's just sort of the, it, it marks an emotional timestamp for me that I thought was used very, very effectively. So uh, looking forward to hearing more from Zbigniew Preissner. Yeah, he. I mean, a lot of the stuff that he's done was with Krzysztof Kieslowski. Mm-hmm. They did a lot of work together. So. And, and he's one of those composers who has written a lot of his own stuff outside of film. And those pieces have gone on to make their way into films, like uh, Tree of Life, um, Terrence Malick's movie. Sure. He pulled one of his requiems in for some of the music there. So, How did it do at award season? It wasn't a huge film, um, awards-wise, which... You know, I don't know if it was just the time or what, but it still did well enough for itself. It had eight wins, eight other nominations. Over at the Oscars, it did get nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay. However, uh, Holland lost to The Silence of the Lambs, Ted Talley, in his adaptation of that. Uh, You know, in context, boy, do I love Silence of the Lambs. And honestly, from the book to the script, I think that was a master in adaptation or, you know, just a masterclass, the way that he adapted it. Really strong adaptation. So I kind of have a hard time with that. What's interesting is that this screenplay was written before the book, the memoirs were finished. Right. So in a weird way, it's almost, I, I don't know the which book came first. The is a novelization. <laughs> yeah, right. It's very funny. Um, Another interesting tidbit about the Oscars, it was fully expected that Germany would nominate, would put this in as their submission for nomination for Best Foreign Language Film. For some reason, they didn't. I don't know why they didn't submit it that year. Well, I think it goes back to what you were saying earlier, right? They did not like this film in in Germany. This was not a popular film in Germany. Yeah, which is strange, but though, because they submitted nothing. It it was like a year they just didn't submit. And so I think that's almost more more telling. Yeah. 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 So um, over at the Golden Globes, however, it did win Best Foreign Language Film. And at the BAFTAs, it was nominated for Best Film, not in the English language, but lost to Raise the Red Lantern. Boy, mm. we like that one. Yeah, we do like That's that. That's a pretty too. tough battle right there. Um, so, you know, all in all, I think it it had a decent amount of love in, in the award circles and, uh, you know, could have done a little better. But still, I think that they're probably pretty happy with where it was. And how did you do at the box office? Boy, you know, this is going to be an interesting series. <laughs> I have no idea what to expect when trying to find financial information for Holland's films. Um, but I tell you, if it's anything like this one, it's not going to be easy. I couldn't find anything as far as the budget for this film, except for the fact Holland said it was low. That's all I have. <laughs> the film premiered in France November 14th, 1990. Then it played at the Human Rights Watch Film Festival May 1991. It opened in New York, June 28th, 1991, opposite The Naked Gun, two and a half, The Smell of Fear. Well, you know I love that. <laughs> what, a, what a combo, though, <laughs> I tell you. It did expand into limited art house releases around the country and ended up grossing $5.5 million domestically. I couldn't find any information on, as to how it did the rest of the world, so unfortunately that is all we have on this one. Hopefully its awards buzz did help it find its audience. Well, Andy, this is a it's a fascinating film to start this series with. I'm I having never seen it. Uh, it was a, a real treat to watch today, and I'm very much looking forward to uh, the rest of the films of of Holland. So I'm I am uh, ready as ever to hit the mat and see how it does over at Flickchart. 
Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel and you'll see all the films we've talked about on this show. If you swipe over in your show notes and tap the word flick chart, it will take you straight over to this film and where you can uh, add it to your own list and see how it stands up against ours. First up, Europa Europa versus Autumn Sonata. Europa Europa, please. I will take Europa Europa. Europa Europa. Man, do the right thing. Oh, well, that's a... (laughs) Horrible pairing. I will say Europa Europa because of the way that this film has stuck with me for the last 30 years. Like it has not left me. So I feel like that, and I'm not saying do the right thing hasn't stuck with me, Yeah, but it's different in different ways. I, you know, I, I feel a little more connected to Europa Europa because of that. I'm fine going either way. Well, I, you know, I think I'm going to go spike on this one. Um, and, And I think it's, I, I know that it is because I I feel I, I feel disconnected. I think I when I watch these World War II movies, especially when I watch movies like like this now or Das Boot, where I'm watching about uh, and I'll say in heavy air quotes the other side, right? Knowing that it's a complex situation and generally we want to fight Nazis, and yet this is a story of people that you grow an affinity to in these films just because of our perspective being sort of in their heads it's it's hard to to sort of watch these movies and come out of it realizing i really like that nazi um you know he was a real sympathetic nazi there uh so i i'm gonna say do the right thing because um that is a movie that uh that i'm i have a uh, still, even as an outsider to that film, I still feel a, a greater connection to it. I think Spike does an exceptional job of making me feel like I have a great connection to it. That's my case. They're both powerful films. You sold me. Oh, I'll right. the right thing. All right. But boy, I, I, I'd I, be happy either way. Me too. I'm not... I'm Two just, solid films. Yes. Yeah. yes. Europa, Europa, or Interstellar. Oh, Andy. What are we going to do here? <laughs> uh, I'm going to say Europa Europa I think I am too that's crazy yeah. to me well all right. it's a good movie Europa Europa or The Untouchables Europa 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 yeah Europa Europa or Trading Places Europa oh, Europa definitely. Europa yeah. Europa 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 or All of Me Europa 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 Europa, Europa, or here it is. Raise the Red Lantern. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You can't have it at the Oscars. You get it here. Which way are we going to (laughs) go? I'm going to go raise the Red Lantern on this one. Ah, boy. They're both very affecting films. I will say raise the Red Lantern as well. All right. Uh, But Criterion, get your act together. (laughs) Get Zhang Yimou into your lineup. Really? Like like all of them. Seriously? Just... Enough just, already. Come on. All right. Europa, Europa, or Rififi? Oh, I'm going to say Europa, Europa. Europa, Europa, yeah. These are tough calls. Diabolical. Raise the Red Lantern. Yeah. That leaves it at 117 on our chart. 117 out of 448 puts it at a 74%. Well, a little 70, lower for that's, me that's than I'd little, like. But. Yeah, that's a little low for me. And, and you know, my own uh, performance wasn't as, as great as I expected. It hit some hard places. How did it do for you? Yeah, same thing. I was really upset with some of my choices I had yeah. to make. It was very difficult. I ended up at 947 out of 4315, which is a 78%, much lower than than I feel Especially it Especially after the conversation we just had, I am stunned to hear <sighs> that mine 
exceeds yours. It came uh, it out was at 186 clearly. out of 1445, and that's an 87%. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and notwithstanding just, challenging yeah. rankings, I mean, it was it was not easy this time around. But still, that should be if I go by the algorithm, Flickchart is recommending that I should rate this as a four and a half star film over at letterboxd.com slash the next reel. And Andy, I gotta say, I I didn't feel any stars fall when I watched this movie. Could be the curse of recency, but it <laughs> feels like a five star film to me. This re- really is a five-star film for me. I mean, again, as I I don't feel like, you know, I've probably said it enough, but it's a film that has that I saw 30 years ago, and it has resonated with me ever since. I, I have images from it that have stuck in my head all that time and likely will continue to do so. The way that Holland crafted the story, I just find such a masterclass in building this type of Pilgrim's Progress story is just beautiful the way it unfolds and the way that we follow his journey. So it's it's absolutely five star film for me. It is absolutely a five star film for me uh, too. I think I I think I've I've accepted the truth, the one and only truth. This was a great movie, and um, I'm I'm eager to I'm eager to show it to others. Frankly, which is a, you know mark of a I think a great mark of a difficult film. So. And and certainly, I mean, I, and as I said, I haven't explored really any films of Holland's outside of her films in the 90s. Mm-hmm. So I'm very much looking forward to exploring our next two films, which are much more recent. And then outside of that, just looking at more of the stuff that she's done, because I feel like she is a filmmaker definitely worth looking at. So where do we go from here? You said it's already a, it's a, it is another war film, Holocaust film. It is. It is. It is her film from 2011 called In Darkness. It is the story of a, a Polish sewage worker who aids a group of Jewish refugees by hiding them in the sewers. Outstanding. That sounds like a real upper. <laughs> All right. It's going to be. It's going to be. And the movie ends. Our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. Oh, did it? I don't know. Well, there's definitely people who hate it. There, That's true. <laughs> it's not just you know, region <laughs> issues, although we do have some of those. We do. I, you know, sometimes it's hard to read these when you get them and the world's already falling apart <laughs> around us. <laughs> We can't go outside. And then you read one of these things and it makes me want to punch my computer. But okay, (laughs) this is the bit we do. Let's go ahead and do it. You want to go first? You want me to go first? All right, do it. I'll go first. I've got a one star by 1776 who says, I tossed my copy in the garbage. Bad acting. (laughs) This is a real stinker. Get Casablanca with Humphrey Bogart or Schindler's List or Saving Private Ryan if you want a World War II movie. My wife and I both thought it was a real stinker. I purchased the movie. Halfway through it, we took it out of the DVD player and tossed it in the garbage. The acting is the worst. That's what I hear, though. I hear that if you really want 
a great list of World War II movies like this one, you're going to go for Schindler's List or Casablanca. <laughs> <laughs> There's a real World War II movie. That, now that's a double feature, I think Randy would say. Uh, well, I got one uh, by me that's titled No. And uh, oh. I, it's just, I just, here we go. Uh, All right. Seriously, you cannot watch this movie. Yes, the message of courage is great and the idea behind the story is good, but it's not realistic. And there are many unnecessary parts in it. The nude parts had nothing to do with the movie's plot. It looked just like he was saying, hey, look at my body. Isn't it great? Yes, the story's important, but it just seemed as if this kid lived his life completely off of luck. And that's not realistic. I watched this movie in history class, and I hope to never see it again. The movie would have been good if some of those parts were excluded. Instead of enjoying the movie, I would turn my head every time a bath would come up. And there are plenty of those. Don't get me wrong. The story was good, but some things are definitely dramatized and made up. My class got, just kept saying, wow, he's lucky, or that was lucky, or whoa, how did he get through that? It was not a good movie. I do not recommend it for anyone. Horrible. Oof. Tough review about a movie whose central object is a penis. Am I right? We got to get through the penis parts. That's part of the plot. It's that a is plot. A pretty heavy. Andy. It starts off with the circumcision, as you it, pointed out. Exactly. It's a plot penis. You cannot have the. If there's no penis, there's no movie. No penis, no movie. So true. They should have put that on the movie poster. <laughs> no penis, no movie. Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today.